Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 70, The Great War. Last time, the conflict that would be remembered as the Great War was underway. The Germans, according to their plan, had built up a strong defensive left flank and would swing at the French with a sweeping right flank that would brush the English Channel. But standing before the German First Army were the defensive works of Liege. Yet they fell quickly enough to the belated arrival of the Big Bertha, or the 420 Krupp Howitzer. In the Big Bertha's wakes was only death and destruction, on a scale never seen before. It even shocked General Ludendorff, but that's what the guns were for. Forts were destroyed, the attackers moved on. Back in Essen, this glorious news manifested itself into more medals from Berlin to Gustav Krupp, now joining his Prussia's Order of the Crown, second class, Bavaria's Military Order of Merit of St. Michael, second class, Mecklenburg's Grand Commander Cross of the Corridor of the Griffin, Bavaria's Star for the Order of the Merit of St. Michael, second class, and some Turkish medals, was the Iron Cross first class, usually only given to those of the battlefield. Hitler himself did not receive this medal until after four years of fighting, being wounded twice, and capturing 15 enemy soldiers, all by himself. And the Kaiser would go on giving Krupp medals, who, let's face it, loved the ceremony and the rewarding of those loyal to him. And though the medals would continue to come, the land the Kaiser's soldiers were taking would not. The German plan began to unravel from the very beginning, yet this was not recognized as such during the initial surge. Though the Big Berthas had made short work of the Belgium defenses, they had been late in getting started, by some 48 hours. Time enough for the British to get themselves together, to begin shipping over the BEF and for the French, with the help of Paris taxi drivers, to rush soldiers to the front. A front that was coming their way faster than anyone could reasonably expect. On came the Germans. But by the time they reached the Marne, the defenders, though about to pay a terrible price for their defense, were starting to stem the German tide. The Battle of the Marne, at its peak, lasted for seven days, from September 5th to the 12th, and involved two million men. The Germans coming tantalizingly close to driving the Allies back to Paris. Yet it was the Germans who were repulsed, despite their Krupp cannon. The invaders fell back to the An River and planted themselves. As it stood, the invaders could not drive forward any further, the defenders unable to come up and push the Germans out, which left each side to consider flanking maneuvers. So, the Germans attacked to the right, the Allies defending to their left. This went on until the shore was reached. From the Swiss border to the Channel, some 466 miles of lines now existed. Yet maneuverability was gone. The only option left were frontal assaults. So, not only had Krupp been the cause of the delay, their guns no matter how many they killed or incapacitated, could solve the problem of winning the war. 
because now that it was joined, no one considered stopping it, after the many deaths, declarations, declared resources involved. But even Krupp's subs, which were to be used to cancel out British sea power, caused headaches for the Kaiser. On May 1st, Krupp U-20 sank the liner Lusitania. More than 1,000 people died, of which 138 were American. The world was horrified. The U.S. President Woodrow Wilson was vitriolic. Word was sent to Berlin. If this happened again, the U.S., with its vast population, would come into the conflict. This the Kaiser did not need. His subs were pulled back. So, what should have been a decisive element of Germany's war policy, their submarine warfare, could not be factored in. Another form of stalemate began. But much of this is hindsight. Gustav went on supporting his Kaiser and could not imagine anything other than a German victory. But there was more to it than that. The Kaiser thought only of Germany and its position in the world. Gustav, because he did business with the world, made plans considering the entire planet. When the war was over with a German victory, due to Krupp Steel, Germany would take land from all those who lost. Germany would become a dominating central hub of Europe. France would lose the land it had near Germany, which would also take away territory that held their coal and iron deposits. Poland would be re-established as a buffer state between Germany and the much-reduced Russia. Germany would also enjoy an African empire, based around naval bases and coaling stations. Belgium would permanently belong to this new Germany, and all of this would be protected by a German navy that ruled the world's oceans. Such were the thoughts and desires of the man who ran Krupp. And if anyone could make all this come true, it was Gustav. But though war generates a certain kind of business, one can't manage both. And Gustav's number one priority was the concern, his wife's company. So Gustav had his priority straight, but others, not so much. After all, this was a war without parallel. Soon questions arose outside of Germany. Which supplies, and therefore the suppliers, would be the first to cut off Germany from something it had already paid for? These resources, and again, therefore the sellers of such goods, were helping Germany's war effort. Did it matter, should it matter, that these sales were within the business sphere, and many of the consignments had been made before hostilities broke out. At first, Krupp's orders were honored, but as the deaths mounted, this aspect of the war was revisited. Some orders were held up, others allowed through to Essen, but this hit and miss would not do for the concern. The work must continue uninterrupted, and it had to continue to grow as it had done since Gustav came on board. The solution was offered up by Krupp engineers. A submarine freighter was proposed and built. It would hold 800 tons and cross the Atlantic in one go. On June 23, 1916, the Deutschland was launched. 
The concern would continue to receive its minerals and raw rubber from the faraway colonies. The United States would not be disturbed, and nagging questions of business versus war could be ignored for now. It will come as no surprise that Krupp's was now all but a weapons manufacturer. Its production ability, output, and payroll increased incredibly during the next four years. When the war broke out, Essen employed some 82,000 men. But before too long, that number rose to 150,000, 20,000 of which were women. There were simply not enough men to fill all the needs of the concern and the Kaiser at the same time. New factories were planned and built, within months the same for workshops, where the assembling was carried out. Early in the war, some 8 million shells were produced each year. By the third year of the war, some 9 million shells were sent out each month. The result of all of this? Before the German advance at Verdun, there was a 12-and-a-half-hour artillery barrage along an 8-mile-wide front. There were now 13 Big Berthas, now called Gamma Guns, involved. This was February of 1916. In June of that same year, the Battle of Jutland saw the Germans sink 14 Allied warships, yet the Germans lost 11 themselves. But at the end, the Allies controlled the sea lanes when the smoke cleared. What was less clear, because only a few people knew about this, was that the ships of both sides were using the same plating. It was a Krupp design, and the British were paying royalties for its use. Or were they? The two sides were now at war, a war that would decide who got to keep their way of life. Surely that was more important than pre-war contracts. But not to Gustav and his board. They kept accounts and expected to be paid in full when this conflagration was over, no matter the victor. Business was business. But it wasn't just the arms dealers killing millions of young men with their weapons. It was also their stodgy superiors who believed that war hadn't changed all that much from their youth. The generals believed that barbed wire was not truly an impediment, more of a nuisance. British subalterns were still expected to learn polo, and officers were within their right to slap any soldier whose uniform was not up to snuff. Men with recently sharpened swords were still ordered to charge at machine guns, which Sir Douglas Hay considered a much overrated weapon. The British and the French did not even use helmets at first, but that changed quickly. Kitchener of the British called the tank a toy, and Hindenburg matched him by saying that his men could do without that peculiar motor car. And General John J. Pershing of the United States still believed, as late as 1918, that cavalry charges could get the job done. Not that what the Allied military leaders thought mattered. The Germans, thanks to the concern, had ten times the long-range cannon of their enemy. So, as the Germans knew they could not advance, not in any real sense, it was believed they could still win by having the Allied soldiers rush at them so they could be cut down. And this is what was happening. 
The Germans had taken territory. The Allies wanted to retake it. So the onus was on them. Yet this was simply canceled out by Krupp's guns. So the men fought and died. The generals planned but remained blind. Less significant countries entered the war and eventually would be out. During all this, Krupp's submarines squeezed Britain. In return, Germany was being effectively blockaded itself. And the strain of that was beginning to tell on the all-highest in Berlin. Perhaps it was time to revisit the unrestricted submarine warfare. The German ambassador to the United States begged his Kaiser not to. But clearly, something had to give. And then Wilhelm had an idea. Mexico would be encouraged to attack the U.S. from the south and reclaim Texas and New Mexico. This would occupy the Americans from helping the Allies in Europe. A telegraph was sent to the Mexican government. Their probable reply was not the issue. London had intercepted this message and published it all across the United States. Tension between Washington and Berlin rose considerably. With this idea ruined, it was time for their only other option. Krupp's submarines must be let loose. Britain must be starved into submission. Then the entire Allied position would begin to unravel. The Kaiser called on his good friend, Gustav, and told him that the production of submarines and torpedoes must become the concern's number one priority. Gustav answered, Yavul, and dashed off to Kiel with the order. The production increase was put into motion. Then the Kaiser, probably joyously so, knowing what was coming for the British, gave the order. Germany already had 148 subs operating, and Gustav would make sure that number did not come down too far during this new underwater offensive. For the next eight weeks, German subs ravaged the ships of the sea lanes. Washington ordered merchant ships to be armed, but their losses continued to increase. Diplomacy, even this armed-shipped diplomacy, had failed. The U.S. declared war on April 6, 1917. Now all Allied ships were doing their darndest against the German subs. They actually sank 50 within the first few months of the U.S. coming into the war. Yet over half of the losses of Allied ships were British, and that country's food supply shrank. Britain's Admiral Jellicoe whispered to his U.S. counterpart that it was only a matter of months before they would have to withdraw from the conflict. In fact, the Admiral gave a date, November 1st, 1917. After all, there was only so much rationing a nation could do. But then the men in uniform appropriated Lloyd George's idea of convoying the merchant ships. This changed the dire situation instantly. Besides, now it was clear that millions of U.S. soldiers would soon be coming over. The sending United States and the receiving British coastlines prepared for the American Expeditionary Force. More destroyers were put out, and death charges were implemented and then improved. But the Germans had their own good news. Russia was now out of the war, and a million of the Kaiser's lads and 3,000 Krupp cannon 
were on their way west. With these, General Ludendorff came at the west. On March 21, 1916, after Krupp's guns softened the enemy troops before them, the Germans came from out of a fog and hit the Allies in between the French and British positions within the Somme Valley. The goal was Amiens, through which ran the Allies' communications. The defensive lines broke. Within six days, the rail line between Amiens and Paris was cut. But then the Germans stopped. Or rather, the men, exhausted and starving, stopped fighting and started looking around for food. But then Ludendorff attacked again in Flanders. There was a barrage with Krupp guns and another fog. The Allied lines broke again. All of the gains from the Allied Passchendaele advance were lost. Again, the Germans rested. Ludendorff told his Kaiser that when he pushed again, it would end with him in Paris. And sure enough, when the Germans attacked, using 4,000 Krupp cannon, gas, and shrapnel, they advanced through a tired British position and then five French lines. The leading elements were now 37 miles from Paris. Another line of defense was clearly needed. The Americans, recently arrived, weren't thought to be ready, but there was no one else to put in between the Germans and the French capital. Marching through the night, the U.S. 5th and 6th Regiments of the Marines got into position and blocked the road to Paris. Making this journey to their dispositions even more difficult were all the fleeing civilians, because they, and quite frankly everyone else, believed that there was no way these inexperienced doughboys could halt the Germans. Yet that is what happened for five days. The Americans gunned down the German troops as they crossed the fields to get to the road the Marines were guarding. Then the still-fresh U.S. soldiers went on the offensive. The Germans were beyond exhausted. By the time the invaders were pushed back just over two miles, only 2,000 of the original 8,000 Marines were still alive, but they had saved Paris and the Allies. This was the beginning of the end of the German drive on Paris. The Second Battle of the Marne saw another U.S. offensive, and then a short time later, the British brought in just over 500 tanks and drove the Germans from Amiens. Thus began the inevitable pushback of German forces and the subsequent politics behind the scenes. Wilhelm, now panicking, believed that long-desired parliamentary reforms would allow him to continue on as Kaiser. Meanwhile, his generals were ordered to fight a delaying action so negotiations could soon start with the Allies to save as much German territory and pride as possible. It was only Gustav Krupp who still believed wholeheartedly in a complete German victory. It was just a matter of producing more cannon and submarines. But that was not the reality. Even the German people wanted out of this. The details could be worked out later. They just wanted the fighting stopped. Their sons, husbands, and fathers brought back home. And food once again on the table. They just wanted peace. 
As for the other German industrialists, they wanted the war over as well, if it could not be won, which didn't appear to be possible. So many of them approached Gustav. They wanted him to lead a team of them to the Kaiser to explain the situation, as it really was. But Gustav chose not to understand their meaning. There were more cannon coming out of his factories every 45 minutes. There were now more subs on the high seas than ever before, which meant nothing. As the Allies, with the Americans taking over more and more of the fronts, were coming ever eastward. So, there would be no delegation. Gustav served his Kaiser as he served his wife. Talking to either one of them as an equal was unthinkable. Besides, Gustav had his own troubles. Since the outbreak of the war, the concern had made, on paper, 432 million marks in profit. But if Germany were to lose, this would just be numbers on paper. But what was worse, the Allies started producing war criminalists, and Gustav Krupp's name was right up there near the top. And there were some that were saying that Gustav was just as guilty as the Kaiser for starting this war. This was not true, but reality is almost always second to perception or repetition. On came the Allies, or rather, it was the left wing that was supposed to come on. The Americans on the far right were to hold up the Germans. To their left, the French were to push. To their left, the British were to do the same. And along the coast, the Belgians, with two American divisions, were to push the hardest of all. Yet the Americans on the far right were eager. They came on anyways. On September 26, 1918, General Pershing threw in nine untried divisions, and they chased the Germans out of their Hindenburg line. It was now truly a race of the Allies to Sedan. With the Second Reich falling apart, almost everyone Wilhelm talked to told him to settle for peace. At least he would still have a country to be the head of. Even his general Hindenburg wrote, The army cannot wait 48 hours. Yet the Kaiser petulantly hesitated. Nevertheless, those just under him still tried to contact the U.S. president. Some nine months ago, he had made an offer, called the 14 points, and by now those points looked very generous indeed. And yet, Wilhelm could not. Ludendorff, not wanting to take the blame for all of this, quit on October 27th. He was replaced by General Wilhelm von Groner, who was not a miracle worker. The time for miracles was over. Then the Navy took it one step further than Ludendorff. When those of Kiel were ordered on November 3rd on an all-or-nothing attack on the British ships, the proud but realistic Navy men chose nothing, as in they mutinied and stayed ashore to stay alive. With the admirable army falling back and the honorable Navy doing the same, the common people were encouraged. Demonstrations broke out. The new chancellor, Prince Max of Baden, told the Kaiser, if he wanted the institution of the Kaiser to remain, then Wilhelm must step down. But the proud man could not simply do it. 
what was the point of saving his regal chair for someone else? Yet Prince Mac started thinking about his head and his future. He announced the abdication regardless. This allowed the Social Democrats to announce a republic for Germany. It was all over but the details. Wilhelm ran to Holland. German representatives signed the French's terms to end the war. The shooting would stop six hours after that signature, but many chose to get off as many rounds as they could until that moment. Then the appointed hour came, the eleventh hour of the eleventh day of the eleventh month. There was total silence. Then roaring cheers from everyone from every battlefield could be heard, for the men doing the fighting just knew there would never be a war again. This one had been so full of death and misery, who would ever condone it again? But it would be more accurate to say that at that moment, it was only the first hour of peace in a very long time. But for many Germans who had been told that victory was just a matter of time, many of them were now bitterly resentful. At the Allies, at their leaders, at their Kaiser. For them, November 11, 1918, was only the first hour of a very long wait. Greetings, members from Central Virginia. So I can't help but think about this moment where we are at the end of World War I and all those German citizens, mostly middle class, who are humiliated, embarrassed, defeatist, and this is truly the low point for them and their culture. And comparing this moment to where we ended on episode 150 of the regular series, when they have conquered all of their enemies, they've defeated everybody, they've had comparatively fewer uh, casualties in all their amazing victories, and now they're into Russia. It's the first year of the war with Russia. And we left off with their leading troops being somewhere around 80 kilometers from the edges of Moscow. I mean, just to go from this day that we just left with the membership episode to that day. I mean, they truly had to feel that their day of reckoning had come many times over, and it was going to come again with Russia. And there just had to be, no matter how many rights they had taken away, all the rationing they had to be going through, the bombing from the British, They, I, you have to think that some of them were just truly in the moment and appreciating what Hitler had turned everything around for them. And now it was truly going to be this new German empire. There just had to be a lot of pride in that. And for it all to come so soon crashing down, I just think it's amazing for some of the Germans born at the right time to see you know, the Great Depression, to see the, the World War One, everything in between, and the, all the way to the end of World War II, just a, a tremendous time to live through with all the highs and lows. And I certainly don't know of a way to uh, how to label it or encapsulate it or whatever. Just everything they have seen just is truly amazing to me. And I just wanted to stop and mention that for a moment and let everybody think about that. And to be clear, I'm certainly not advocating revenge or whatever, but for those people who have every reason to be very proud of, of German culture up until that point and everything else they had achieved, and everybody else was you know, trying to have their own empire as well, they seem to be on the verge of truly having the empire of dominating Europe. And it just had to be an incredible time for those people, the good and the bad. P.S. 
the second episode for December. Sorry, it's coming out late. We'll be out in two days. Take care, everyone.